Our final reading today comes from the book of Acts, Acts 2, verses 1 through 21. When the day of Pentecost had come, the disciples were all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they said, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene? and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others sneered and said, They're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk as you suppose for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour my spirit out upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show portents in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. We pray with the church throughout time. Come Holy Spirit, come Creator Spirit. Come renew us, come refresh us. Lord, would you make it so that we could not ignore your leading, your promptings today. Speak to us in the way that is our native language, our heart language. Speak through your word. Remind us of the words of Jesus. Come and comfort and counsel and guide. And Lord, would you, through your Spirit, shed abroad the love of the Father, the love of God in our hearts. We ask things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning. If we haven't met, my name is Isaiah. I'm the associate pastor here at Christ the King. Today is Pentecost Sunday. This is possibly my favorite of our like table settings. It's just so powerful and beautiful. And so... I'm glad to be able to celebrate today, both in our liturgy and our song, and also through the preaching of the word, um, what is the birthday of the church? Happy birthday, church. It's Pentecost. Yeah, so I want to talk to you today about the story of Pentecost that we just read, and the way that this story has the potential to change our whole direction as human beings. Um, When I say story, I'm not talking about uh, fairy tales or children's lit. 
um, but rather the narrative of reality by which we live and frame our lives. As an Anglican leader, Pete Hughes says, uh, the story you live in is the story that you live out. The story you live in is the story you live out. In other words, whatever vision of reality captures your imagination and heart is the one that you will move towards and eventually embody. Let me give you an example. If you believe that you are primarily on your own in this life, you will live an increasingly independent life full of seemingly, uh, seeming self-determination. Uh, that is until you can't, either because of age or illness or financial crisis beyond your control. Conversely, if your mind and heart are captured to, 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 by seeking to live on the right side of history, as it's sometimes called, uh, continually conscious of your past participation in systems of injustice, you will seek to disassociate yourself from those who are less aware than you, those on the wrong side of history, maybe. Uh, publicly denouncing their injustice and finding personal fulfillment through your personal convictions, however newly founded those convictions may be. In this vision of reality, history is primarily divided between two camps, those under various kinds of oppression and those oppressing them. To live out of this story is to align yourself with the oppressed and not the oppressor at all costs. And the list could go on and on. The vision of Christian nationalism that sees God's eternal purposes inextricably tied with the fate of a particular nation state and culture. To live out of this story is to be a patriot Christian, often justifying gross immorality and injustice in the pursuit of reclaiming what is seen as rightful cultural power. Uh, the vision of sexual freedom that regularly eschews healthy relationality in, in favor of unhindered exploration of desire and self-expression. This list could go on and on. Uh, often we're dealing with more than one of these stories, layered and interwoven, uh, competing for our attention, our affection, and ultimately our loyalty. Do you see the formative power of story? No one understands this better in Western culture than advertising firms. The next time you catch an ad on YouTube or Instagram, ask yourself the question, what vision of the good life is this portraying, and what are those narrating this story or this vision betting that I will do in response? You see, advertisers know something about human beings that philosopher Alistair McIntyre has put this way, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of, of what story or stories do I find myself a part? I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story do I find myself apart? Sociologist Clifford Geert says of humans that we're narrative animals. That is, we're inescapably hardwired for story, which is why, in God's infinite wisdom and creativity, he doesn't primarily communicate through law or proposition, but through story. Two-thirds of the Bible is narrative. And though it contains other forms of literature, like poetry and discourse, it's framed in terms of epic narrative. That is, it like begins in the beginning, and it ends in the end. <laughs> um, and everything in between has some sort of cohesion because of this. It's the shape. If this is true, that the Bible, in its divine inspiration and literary diversity, should be read as the true story of humanity and the world, how then should we relate to Scripture? What ex exactly is the invitation being made by the Spirit to readers? What should our response look like? New Testament scholar and Anglican bishop N.T. Wright frames our potential response this way. Suppose there exists a Shakespeare play whose fifth act had been lost. 
Now, if Shakespeare is hard for you, just imagine this in terms of seasons of your favorite Netflix show, okay? The first four acts or seasons provide, let us suppose, such a wealth of characterization, such a crescendo of excitement within the plot that it's generally agreed that the play ought to be staged. Nevertheless, it's felt inappropriate to actually write the fifth act once and for all. It would freeze the play into one form and com commit Shakespeare as it were, or your favorite show, as it were to being prospectively responsible for work, in fact, not his own. Better it might, it might be felt to give the key parts to highly trained, sensitive, and experienced Shakespearean actors who would immerse themselves in the first four acts, who would then be told to work out a fifth act for themselves. So this would be, in, in this his proposal, and it's more lengthy than this, I'm trying to give you the short version, but uh, he would see, this is a Wright's kind of formulation of seeing the five acts of scripture potentially as something like creation and fall and Israel and Jesus. So the New Testament then would form the first scene of the fifth act. Um, and there would be hints of the very end of that scene, right? So like parts of Revelation or Romans 8 or 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the resurrection and the renewal of all things. Um, and this would guide, of course, how that place is supposed to end in its last, its last part. So then the church would live, then live under the authority of the story, being required to offer something between an improvisation and an actual performance of the final act. So in other words, in Wright's view, the invitation of the Spirit is for Christians to do two things. Immerse ourselves in the grand narrative of Scripture, the story thus far, and the glimpses we have of what Jesus calls the renewal of all things, the renewed heavens and the new earth. And, this is crucial, to be listening to the Holy Spirit today for how he might be asking us to improvise in continuity with what's come before and in line with where it's all headed, but spirit-directed improvisation nonetheless. Maybe that sounds like a bold proposal for, for some of you this morning. I think it's an exciting one. Let me give some examples of what this might look like. As we read text uh, like out of the lectionary text today, that describe the work of the Spirit as prophetic, both in the sense that human hierarchies are reordered. I don't know if you notice that there's that men and women both get the Spirit, right? Um, young and old, dream dreams, have visions, and even slave and free. So you have some reordering of like even just the way of the first century is ordered in terms of hierarchy, in terms of the patriarchal structures, in terms of the slave and free, right? So we see these things are starting to be like reordered by the Spirit in the church, and that begins to be the story of the church. So they're re renewed in light of Jesus and God's kingdom breaking into their midst, and it's prophetic also in the sense that Jesus calls people to rethink their lives. You might call this repentance, which, by the way, it's, just, it's not a dirty word. I know that we've, we've, uh, we often hear it because I think people are like yelling it sometimes from like the street corners of a sign, and I just don't think like when people heard John the Baptist or Jesus say repentance, or in the Greek language it would be metanoia, like I don't think that they were thinking in the terms of like just turn or burn. I think they were thinking, what is this possibility that's being extended to me? What is the invitation to rethink my life in, in light of who Jesus is and his kingdom? Um, so we should hear it that way. So Jesus calls people to rethink their lives, we, what we could call repentance in the biblical language, and the source of their life, which is uh, renewal, right? From the inside out, rivers of living water um, that Jesus says you'll drink of and then they'll flow from you. So what happens at the day of Pentecost involving a social change and heart-level renewal happens over and over again in the book of Acts and in the long history of the church. Globally right now, in the church of Jesus Christ looks a lot like the book of Acts, particularly in many parts of the global south, but also in pockets of the west. 
The Holy Spirit is reversing ethnic prejudice, healing racial wounds, reordering social and economic hierarchies. Prophetic actions and words are accompanying these movements of the Spirit with signs and wonders validating the message of Jesus in the public square. Indeed, it would be impossible to tell the story of the church in places as culturally diverse as Tibet and Iran, Spain and Mozambique, without testifying to the work of the Holy Spirit and dreams and visions, talked about in Joel's prophecy, physical healings and dramatic conversions, unconditioned by the lights and music, celebrity pastors, or vestiges of cultural Christianity that we might be more familiar with. I myself have witnessed these kinds of things happening with some regularity in the largely post-Christian culture of the Pacific Northwest where I grew up and spent the first 15 years of ministry on progressive college campuses and in places that supposedly God doesn't like and in urban centers like Portland, Seattle, and Vancouver, definitely places God doesn't like. Uh, God has been drawing people to himself who have little or uh, no familial or cultural background in Christianity. I genuinely have friends who never been to a church, never met a Christian that they knew of. Um, people who have uh, no interest in what they would call organized religion are increasingly interested in spiritual experiences and communities who are actively engaging the primary questions of existence and meaning. And that last part really strikes me because um, often I wonder if, um, you know, this is our calling, right, to engage the primary questions of existence and meaning, both for ourselves and for the world. And when we forgo that for something else, some kind of religious performance, or I, I don't know exactly what all the things are that we're chasing sometimes, but I think that people often look into the church and then they say, well, they're not talking about those things. I'll look somewhere else to try to answer those questions. Um, in addition, many people in the West are feeling the loneliness that comes from seeking to live as self-determined individuals, unfettered by the demands of family, religious groups, and external moral frameworks, but also oftentimes experiencing a desperate lack of community. It's really hard to be a self-determined individualistic, right, and then also have like a deep and thick community, um, which is another thing that the church supposedly, you know, in the spirit of Jesus has on offer is actually like community, identity and community, not in isolation. Uh, the group of Jesus' followers he instructed to wait for the coming of the Spirit were a fearful and confused bunch, so that much we might have in common. These men and women had left everything to follow Jesus and had ultimately found themselves on the outs with the culture at large, not just politically, like Joanna, who left Herod, Herod's uh, wealthy inner uh, circle, she was a disciple of Jesus, or James and John, who left the radical politics of the zealots, wanting to overthrow and enact their version of Jewish nationalism. Um, uh, they left these things to become disciples of Jesus, to become followers and apprentices of him. But also, um, this was not popular with some of their families, as Jesus' followers left comfort and economic security to be with him. By the time of his crucifixion, of course, any illusions of immediate power or vindication for their sacrifices um, were gone. Even the joy and hope that this, his resurrection from the dead brought uh, brought his scattered and weary uh, band of followers. You know, there was a there was an encouragement, there was a, a coming together. But you also notice in a lot of those resurrection stories, there's there's almost like more fear. It's like they don't even quite know exactly what to do. We've never seen someone resurrect from the dead, which tells you it wasn't just a spiritual resurrection, but it was actually a bodily resurrection. Um, but here they are again. He's left now. It seems like he's absent. Um, you'd be uh, hard-pressed to find a group of people more weary of religious hype at this point 
uh, more recently disillusioned by their own desires for physical and spiritual renewal. They're not sitting at this moment thinking, we totally know what's going on. We totally know what he's going to do. We know we're, we, it's like money in the bank. That's not how they're, they're actually like a really scared group of people living on the margins of the empire, sitting in a room, hoping that what Jesus said is true. <laughs> that's, that's where they're at, which I find encouraging. That's, I can see myself in that. Um, maybe that's you today. Maybe you feel more in touch with the feeling of God's apparent absence than the assurance of his presence. If that's you today, then Pentecost is for you. There are undoubtedly others here in the room this morning who are waiting for God to move, either in their lives or in the world or both. Pentecost is for you too. Some of you have been experiencing the work of the Spirit in your lives as of late. Things feel different than they have before, and you're finding it easier to pray, more enjoyable, more natural, more human. Pentecost is for you as well. There are some of you here today who haven't yet decided whether Jesus can be trusted with your life. Pentecost is also yours if you want it. God's promise to his people is that he won't leave us alone, that he'll be with us no matter what, to paraphrase Jesus. In John's gospel, Jesus teaches extensively on how this can be true, that he won't leave us or forsake us, in the event of his ascension. His answer to this problem, the Spirit. He says the Spirit is the helper, the comforter, an advocate, a counselor, a teacher, bringing to memory things he's told us. Later, the Apostle Paul will tell us that the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Spirit who's been given to us. It's a gift. The Spirit is a gift. Some of you may have seen um, that Tim Keller died this last week after a long uh, battle with cancer. Uh, I've never read all the way through any of Tim's books, and I can't remember really listening to many of his uh, sermons. Not that much of a devotee necessarily, but I did have the chance to hear him um, speak in 2016 in New York. And his short message that day was on our text today from Acts. You know, not necessarily known, Tim, you know, not necessarily known for being particularly charismatic or Pentecostal. Uh, He nonetheless shifted the way I read this passage um, by pointing out the parallels with Acts 2, with the baptism of Jesus in the gospel, and how it connects to the spirit baptism of the church in the book of Acts. See, at Jesus' baptism, the Spirit uh, comes accompanied by the voice of God the Father proclaiming, this is my beloved Son upon whom my favor rests. After Jesus' baptism, Luke tells, tells us that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert where he would confront spiritual evil and the twisted narratives about who he was and, and how he could supposedly enact God's kingdom through the power of manipulation and celebrity. That's what's going on in the desert. And after countering these various, ne- various narratives and corrupting invitations with God's story and his true identity in light of the story that, that God is telling, Luke tells us that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So when Luke writes of Jesus in the end of his gospel, in the beginning of the book of Acts, that Jesus commands his followers to wait for the coming of the Spirit so that they too could be clothed with power from on high, the question is, power for what? And the gospel's account is is informative. Jesus' own experience as a human being coming under the direction of the Holy Spirit. A lot of times people talk about the purpose of Pentecost um, primarily in terms of mission, and that's that's not totally wrong. Um, But I don't think it's even necessarily the core thing that happens with the coming of the Spirit. The core thing that happens at Pentecost is that the Spirit comes as grace, 
as sheer grace. And all these people that are coming from different languages and places in the world hear the words of God in their own heart languages. They feel the love of God like a glass of good wine seep into their bodies. Remember, Peter has to defend them. They're not, they're not drunk in that way. But something is happening. Something is taking control of their disposition in a new way, in a way that makes them more fully human and alive to God, because those things aren't in opposition. As Keller said it this way on uh, that day in New York, he said, when you know you're that loved, that's power. And Romans 5.5, which we've already referenced today, confirms this, reminding us that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given us gift, grace, love being shed abroad in our hearts by the gift of the Spirit. So whatever acts of mission and justice and compassion come next in the book of Acts, and there are many, they flow from this. It's the same reality that Jesus experienced at his baptism and in the desert dealing with the false narratives of evil. It's that you are his beloved child. That's why Paul will later write in Romans that all who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. For you do not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the very Spirit, the Spirit of God, bearing witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And again in Galatians he writes, And because you are children, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. When you know you're that loved, that's power. Power to overcome the lies of the enemy. Power to overcome the pressing forces of conformity and corruption. And most importantly, power to be found in Him. See, sometimes when we imagine the church to be a place where it's like everyone can kind of get their act together and we're all kind of looking to some sort of like model Christian or model disciple or what it means to be a good person. Um, This can be even just true of the world generally, but it can be true also in the church. And one of the things I love about this this, uh, chapter in Acts and the day of Pentecost is that when the Spirit comes, people hear God in their heart language in a way that's crossing all kinds of boundaries, and that's going to continue to happen throughout the book of Acts. Um, but they, they're not actually brought into a space of conformity. So they're united, like by the Spirit, but they're not actually brought into some kind of um, like conformed space or hegemonic space. Um, so it's this unity and diversity that the Spirit brings. And I think it's important to say, because we're in a time where the world is increasingly diverse, the United States is increasingly diverse, both culturally, ideologically, all the different kinds of ways. And we seek to be a church that reflects God's kingdom, that reflects, remember, the end of the story, like, like in Revelation. I think Ashley was preaching on this a couple weeks ago, talking about every tribe and tongue and all the cultures bringing their gifts, right? And so, so we can't afford to be like sucked into a narrative of Christian nationalism or individualism, right? Because we're actually being called into something better, something that is more unified and whole and free, where people actually get to show up in their humanity, but in their redeemed humanity, right? With their cultures um, in service of Jesus. As an Anglican church, uh, we're part of a group of churches called the Churches for the Sake of Others. Um, This group, called the Diocese in Anglican Speak, has five core values. They're kingdom, spirit, formation, mission, and sacrament. If you're curious about those, you can look them up on their website or whatever, but I love the description of the value of the Spirit, and I just want to read it to you today. 
it says that God's purposes, and this is dense, this was clearly wordsmith, so just hang with it, but God's purposes in a fully orbed, or full-orbed full discipleship to Jesus require a power that matches his intentions. This is the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Wait to embark on ministry until you've received power from on high, that's Luke 24, is a paradigmatic passage and reality for Christian ministry, and not, not what I'm doing right now, Christian ministry, as in all of us. We live by God's design and purpose in an age meant to be marked by an interactive relationship with the Holy Spirit. The church participates with the life of God in the world through the person and work of the Spirit. The Spirit gives authority, power, and gifts, and fruit, whereby the church is enabled to live into its mission. We teach everyone to set aside biases or confusion about the Holy Spirit and to welcome Him, His animating, energizing, equipping, and empowering presence into their life, thus enabling the good they dream to do in the world. There's so much in there that we could unpack one or two things I want to highlight. One is that some of y'all have been in spaces where people talk about the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, which are, of course, in the Bible, so they're not making that part up, but um, they're used or utilized in such a way that feel utilitarian or impersonal, or sometimes in ways that feel more about personal, like my own kind of um, status in a community or um, the way that I can kind of show off or I have some kind of insider like, you know, um, direct line to God in a way that doesn't actually build up the body of Christ. It doesn't actually love our neighbors as ourselves. And so that's why Paul, for example, in Corinthians, like the passage we read today, he pairs the two, um, you know, probably thickest chapters on spiritual gifts in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, on either side of this chapter, all about, and this is the most famous chapter of Paul's probably, 1 Corinthians 13, what's it all about? Love, right, right. So, so the gifts of the Spirit belong with the fruit of the Spirit. If you are growing in both, the propensity for abuse drops to almost zero. Okay, so I just wanted to say that. That's just a really practical thing. And I, and I say that because clearly we're, we're a church that wants to live into like the vision of God, both in the scriptures and church history. We're a global church. One of the gifts of being at our clergy conference was sitting, um, this was in Kansas City a couple of weeks ago, sitting with folks that were from Nigeria and from different parts of Latin America, Anglicans who are worshiping in ways that were like very similar to me and also very different from me and hearing the testimonies of that. And so the disconnection of the global church is essential. So if we're going to be a place that is not monocultural and going to embrace the biblical narrative, then we're going to have to learn how to operate in the gifts of the Spirit. And it's a crucial that we do that while growing in the fruit of the Spirit, right? So we receive the Holy Spirit in its fullness, both gifts and fruit. Um, I think it's really, really important, this part about interactive relationship with the Holy Spirit. Jesus did not send these guys after he spent all this time with him, men and women, and just said, go do all the things that I showed you to do. He did say those kinds of things, but he said, wait, wait, wait first. First, wait for the Spirit. Um, because the kinds of things that Jesus did as a human being who was God but fully like laid aside his divinity 
and operated as a man under the power of the Spirit to show us what true humanity looks like, what true power looks like. Like It looks like the cross. It looks like healing. It looks like renewing. Um, those things are impossible to do in our world without the power of the Spirit. And so our church and our lives must be marked by interactive relationship with the Holy Spirit, just like it's described kind of here in our diocese statement. Um, and I love this phrase, and we'll just close on this, uh, where he says, you know, to be a disciple of Jesus, to live into that reality, you know, it requires a power that matches his intentions. I just want you to think about what God's intentions might be, what his good intentions might be for you, for the world, for Northwest Arkansas, for your lives, for your jobs, for your marriages, for your singleness, for all the different situations you're bringing into the room. I want you to think about the good intentions of God and think about the power that that would require. And I want to remind you that we primarily define power in terms of love, that the Holy Spirit first comes to adopt us, to remind us of our baptism, right? Remind us of our identity. And that all mission flows from that. Um, so this morning, like even as we're offering, we're going to offer prayer again today, I would invite you, and it doesn't have to be up here this morning, but I would invite you to find people in your life and pray for the Spirit. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. You're sealed with it for the day of redemption. But it doesn't mean that you can't be filled with the Spirit. That's an ongoing experience of the Christian. It doesn't happen one time. It happens over and over and over again. We live from the Spirit. Everything the Christian does is based off the Spirit. We're led by the Spirit. We're guided by the Spirit. And we're to be filled with the Spirit. Pentecost is our story. It's the story of the early church. It's the story of a church throughout time. It's the story of the global church right now question is, will we let it shape and form us as a church? God is inviting us by his spirit to something better than we know, to experience a power that matches his intentions for us and for the world. I'm going to wrap us up in prayer, and then we're going to go through the prayers of the people. Father, we ask these words today, your words, would be light and life to us, that you would enliven us, that you'd vivify us, that you'd encourage us and lift our gaze. We pray again this morning, come Holy Spirit. Remind us of the words of Jesus. Shed abroad the love of the Father in our hearts. We thank you for the gift of your Spirit, that there's no striving that there's no earning, but only grace. And we come to you this morning again, desiring to be filled with your Spirit. Thank you for the gift of your Spirit. Thank you for Pentecost. Thank you for your church. Lord, would we live a mission here in this place that could only flow from your love, that could only flow from your Spirit. Lord, would you remove other things that are getting in the way, other ideas that we have of what we need to to do for you or say for you that don't flow from that. Would you renew us at the core? In your name, Lord. Amen.